1 John 4, through 4, 9 through 14. By this, the love of God was manifested in us, that God sent his only begotten son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us, because he has given us of his spirit. We have seen and testified that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. together. Father, as we come to your word now, I ask that you might show us what love is, what true love is, and the great extent you went to make it known to us. Lord, may our hearts perceive it, and then may our hearts reflect that love this morning. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Today is the last Sunday before Christmas, if you didn't know that. And this day is the day we set aside for lighting the Advent candle of love each year. Love. Why does love come right before Christmas? I think it's fitting. It's a fitting thing. It's fitting that love is our focus as we approach Christmas Day. Because Christmas, at its core, is all about love. All about love. Christmas, the coming of Christ, the incarnation, God taking on flesh like ours, it's all a display of God's amazing love. We'll look together at a verse that says exactly that in a moment in 1 John chapter 4. We'll see it. But first, I want to ask a question, a very basic question. What is love? What is love? Baby, don't hurt me. Don't hurt me no more. What is love? What is love? How you answer that question is largely shaped by your worldview, how you see the world. What is love? If your worldview is one of materialism and scientism, where everything must have a physical, material explanation, then your view of love is going to be very restricted, isn't it? It's restricted to those things. If you believe observable science can explain all things, that's what you believe, but then that faith is put to the test when you encounter something like love. What is love? What is love in a purely materialistic world? Love is nothing more than chemical reactions. Love is nothing more than brain chemistry. Love is nothing more than neurons firing in a certain sequence. That's all. 
That's all that a husband's love for his wife is, brain chemistry. That's all that a mother's love for her child is in a purely materialistic world. There's nothing more than brain chemistry coupled with evolutionary conditioning. Mothers who didn't love their children died out. (laughs) Those children didn't make it. Husbands who didn't love their mates walked out. Only those with the right brain chemistry stayed, had a family, reproduced themselves. Love, therefore, is an evolutionary accident to preserve the species and nothing more. That's it. In a purely materialistic world, there's nothing more. If you think we are only material beings, then love can ever only be chemistry and conditioning. Love can be nothing more than what science can observe. But there is a problem with that, isn't there? We aren't satisfied with that for good reason. We aren't satisfied with what science can observe. We all know deep down that there is more to love than that. We know there's much more to love. We know it at the graveside as we say goodbye to a loved one. It's Bruce Mill's birthday today. We know it, don't we? We know there's more to love than that. We know it in the delivery room as we hold in our arms a newborn child. We know there is more to love. We know it at kindergarten graduations, at holiday gatherings with family, at meals around the table with beloved friends. We know there is more to love than neurons firing. We know it instinctively that there is more. We attend weddings. And as we look into the eyes of the bride and groom, we know there is more to this thing we call love than what science is capable of observing. In truth, we know that science cannot tell us the greater part of what love truly is. But God can. God can tell us. Just as the author can tell us more about the plot than any one character in it, God can tell us more about what love really is than any character who's experienced it in the story. Even if that character were a Sherlock Holmes. right? The one person who always knows more than Sherlock is who? Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. <laughs> he wrote the book. He wrote the story. He's, he knows all that's going on because he's the source of it all. Do you see that? God knows best what love really is because he's the source. And he's told us what it is. This morning, God holds out to us Christmas as exhibit A. This is what love truly is. This is it. 
You want to know what love is? God asks. Here is the object lesson. Look at Christmas. Look at Christmas. Look at Christ coming into the world. This morning, we're going to look at six verses in 1 John chapter 4. Hopefully you have your Bible open there. Six verses, and I want to draw out five points from these six verses to illustrate the connection between Christmas and love. And here's the first one. Christmas, point number one, Christmas is about a manifestation of love. A manifestation of love. We see that in verse 9. By this, the love of God was manifested in us, that he sent his only begotten son into the world so that we might live through him. John tells us in verse 9 that Christmas is about the manifestation of love, of God's love. If you don't like the word manifestation, it's kind of a long word. You can use the word testimony instead. Christmas is a testimony of God's love. If you're taking notes and both manifestation and testimony don't feel, don't do it for you, feel a bit too much, just write the word show. Christmas is about a show of love, a display of God's love. God showed his love to the world by sending his son here to us. So, in order for us to better understand what love is, we first need to understand what this means. What does it mean that God sent his only begotten son into the world? If by this the love of God is manifested, what then is involved, what's at stake in the incarnation? While we could highlight many things here, I want to focus on one. This love displayed in the incarnation, this love displayed at Christmas, is a love that humbles. It's a love that humbles. Here we see the setting aside of rights for the sake of love. In the incarnation, where we celebrate Christmas we see God willingly set aside his rights, humble himself. The one who made everything becomes a baby incapable of making anything. The one who fills all things now only fills a virgin's womb. The one whose sight pierces all things now becomes a child with blurry vision. The one who spoke all things into being becomes a baby incapable of speech. The one who possesses utter independence becomes utterly dependent upon a mother's tender care. That's a love that humbles. The child in, a, in the manger is actually God come to dwell with us. He's God who has laid aside his rights and added our humanity to his deity. 
all the essential properties of God and all the essential properties of man coming together in a beautiful marriage. The God-man, fully God, fully man. But in that union, there is a humbling. By adding humanity to deity, there is a humbling. There's a laying aside of divine rights for love's sake. If you want to know what Christmas teaches us about love, it's that love puts others before self. Love puts others before self. Love willingly lays down its rights. By this, John says, by this the love of God was manifested to us, that God sent his only begotten son into the world. He laid down his rights for the good of those he loved so that we might live through him. That's the first thing. It's a humbling love. Here's the second thing. Second thing we learn about love from this passage is that Christmas is about an initiating love. An initiating love. Look at verse 10. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us. Christmas is about an initiating love. Our love didn't initiate God's rescue mission for humanity. It's not that we loved him first. It's that he loved us first. It wasn't like we were all the, all of us here, we were like the Who's down in Whoville, loving and lovable. That's not us. Truth be told, we were much more like the Grinch. Like the Grinch, our hearts were full of unwashed socks. Don't you love that image? Our, there were garlics. There's garlic in our soul. That's us. Our love for God didn't initiate anything. But while we were unlovely, while we were helpless, God took the initiative. God's love took the initiative and sent out a rescue mission for humanity. You know, it's probably not a coincidence that many of the Christmas films we watch every year are really at their heart rescue missions. Have you ever noticed this? It's a Wonderful Life involves the rescue of George Bailey from, by a community that loves him from throwing away his life. I wish I had never been born. White Christmas involves the rescue of a washed up army general by the soldiers who love him, who fought alongside him. Christmas in Connecticut, I mean, I've seen that one, I love that one, involves the rescue of a writer's reputation by those who love her. Frosty the Snowman, what is that? It's the rescue of Frosty from being melted by the kids who made him and love him. Rudolph, the red-nosed reindeer, involves the rescue of the misfits, misfit toys, delivering to children who will love them. Arthur Christmas, New, new one involves the rescue of a child from the disappointment that they've been forgotten. They've been overlooked. Home Alone, one and two, there are no others, <laughs> involves the rescue of home and holiday from the bandits. Wet bandits, sticky bandits, it doesn't matter. You know, I haven't seen it, but I'm told that Die Hard is a Christmas movie. 
And I'm pretty sure that's a rescue mission as well, right? Hollywood just can't get away from the reality that Christmas is hardwired to be a rescue mission. That's what it is. The light has come into our darkness. The Savior has come. He's come to rescue us. Christmas is about God's initiating love. A love that pursues. A love that rescues. A love that chases us down and embraces us. We all know Jesus' story of the prodigal son, don't we? The son leaves the father, takes his inheritance and leaves home, squanders it all, comes to his senses eventually and comes back. And as he's walking on the road, the father sees him. And what does the father do? The father runs. He runs and embraces his son. Why did Jesus tell us that? Jesus wanted us to see the pursuing, initiating love of the Father. The Father comes to us, embraces us, puts the ring on our finger, puts the robe on our back, kills the fatted calf. My son who was dead is now alive. He has come back. Jesus told us the story to illustrate God's love. It's a love that runs and embraces the prodigal. But Jesus also told us this story to put his finger on the Pharisees' self-righteousness. They were the elder brother in the story who refused to go into the party for the son. Why? What's the reason they give? This, the elder brother gives? It's because I have always obeyed you. Because I've always kept the rules. I'm not going in. That's not a good elder brother. The Bible reveals to us another elder brother, Jesus. Jesus is our elder brother, and what does he do? In love, he pursues. In love, he initiates a rescue of us. What should the elder brother have done in the story? He should have said to the father, I'm going. I'm going to get my brother, and I will bring him home, though it costs me everything though it cost me my life. And that's exactly what it cost him. Christ is an elder brother unlike the Pharisees. Jesus is an elder brother full of initiating love, pursuing us, laying aside his rights, giving his inheritance away to us. He left heaven for earth in pursuit of us. He initiates when we cannot. So, If we want to love like Jesus, what must we do? We must initiate. We must pursue. We don't wait for others to love us first. We don't wait for those to appear who are worthy of our love. We have a love that initiates because that's exactly what God has done for us. Look again at verse 10. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Christmas is about an initiating love in verse 10. And, verse 10, it's also about a punishment-absorbing love. 
punishment-absorbing. That's the third point, a punishment-absorbing love. God sent us his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Christmas is about a punishment-absorbing love. That idea is all tied up in that one word, propitiation. If you ever read Jerry Packer's classic book, Knowing God, there's a whole chapter on this. This is the heart of the gospel, one word, propitiation. Now, I know that's a word that you use every day, right? Propitiation. Kids, you've spoiled mom's restful evening. Now, who wants to come make propitiation for that? Right? Who wants to absorb the punishment? It's a, it's a very specialized word. We don't use it hardly any anymore. And your Bible may give a different word or a couple of words because we don't use the word propitiation. The original Greek word carries the idea of wrath being absorbed, like a sponge soaking up anger over an offense. Because the truth is, you've offended someone. I've offended someone. We've all offended creation's king. He says, the law is, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. Guess what? On your best day, you're not doing that. You fall short. We all fall short. You've committed cosmic treason. You had an infinite obligation to obey God, and you blew it day by day. Someone now has to absorb Justice has to absorb the punishment of the king's just anger, of his righteous wrath. The Bible says that God the Father sent his son to do just that. This was Jesus' mission. From the moment of his birth in Bethlehem, he was born to die in our place absorbing the punishment that was due to us. My father tells the story of a classroom that was in chaos. I think it's probably around the turn of the 1900s. Maybe like mining town, rough, rough kids. They drive one teacher out of town. Another comes in and it's, you know, it's like the Wild West. We got to set up some rules here. And the kids begin to realize this too. No one wants to live in complete chaos. And so the teacher says, okay, what are the class rules going to be, kids? You get to decide. And, I mean, they, they say things like, no, no bullying on the playground. We don't like that. I don't like that when that happens. Okay, what, what, what should we do when that happens? Uh, it's, it's the rod, right? It's the, the, the ruler. Smack on the back. Uh, what else, kids? Stealing, right? If anyone steals, well, we don't like things stolen from us. Same thing. Smack, smack. And you know what happens. Eventually, the rules are set up and someone breaks the rules. Someone breaks the rules. Someone steals a treasured eraser from someone else. And the search is done and it is found in little, I don't remember the names, little Jared's (laughs) possession. And Jared is a scrawny guy. And the littlest of, of the class. And punishment has to be done. Justice has to be served. And the, the kids look at Jared 
and they think, we don't want this. We don't want to see this. Um, Jerry takes off, off his coat, and there's nothing on underneath, and she, he's just skin and bones. And the, the tough guy of the class, the bully, let's call him Joey. Uh, Joey steps forward and says, do we really have to do this? this and the teacher says, yes, this, these are the rules. This is justice. This is what it'll take. And Joey says, okay, I'll take it. I'll take it in Jared's place. I will take the punishment. He was the propitiation of that punishment. Now, I butchered that story my father would tell, but it does convey the idea of propitiation, but not in a way that completely reflects our situation either. Let me modify that story just a little bit. Instead of a thief who stole a prized eraser, we have committed cosmic treason against the king. Instead of a poor boy named Jared, it is willful rebels who have done this. We have put our fists in the face of God and said, no, we will have it our own way. Instead of the school tough guy who stands forward, take the punishment, it's the king's son, his only perfect son. And instead of it being licks from a ruler, it is crucifixion upon a cross. It is death is the punishment deserved. That's our real situation. The love that we see in Jesus is a punishment-absorbing love. It's a lay-down-your-life kind of love. Jesus said, greater love has no one than this. Then he laid down his life for his friends. What's the next thing he said? You are my friends. You. You are my friends. I lay down my life for you. This kind of love demands something from us, doesn't it? To be loved in this incredible way ought to demand something from us. This kind of love that loves us as we are also refuses to leave us that way. It requires a response from us. We see the response we're meant to have in verse 11. Look at verse 11. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Here's the fourth thing I want you to see. Christmas is about a contagious love. A contagious love. Verse 11, if God loved us in this way, we ought to reflect that love to others. We ought to do that as well. Here's the beautiful truth. God isn't calling us to do anything that he hasn't first done for us already. God does call for a response from us. He does call us to do things. He does call for a response. But our response to him is meant to reflect what he has already done for us. For example, God calls us to forgive. Forgive one another from the heart. It's a command. Do it. God calls us to forgive, but 
we are to forgive. Why? Because God has already forgiven us of our mountains of sin. In our joy, in our gratitude, we go and do likewise. We forgive others. God calls us to remove our anger from others because he has already removed his anger from us at the cross. God calls us to bear one another's burdens because Jesus has taken our burden upon himself already. God calls us to welcome and accept others. Why? We're to do it just as Christ has welcomed and accepted us. Your response, God's calling for a response. Your response is meant to be a reflection of what Jesus did for you already through the gospel. Here we see the exact same thing again. God calls us to love one another because he first loved us. It's a response. Love lavishly because you are loved lavishly. Our love, therefore, isn't to be a white-knuckled willpower thing. I'm just going to do it. Our love is to be one of wondrous gratitude. I'm just so grateful. I'm loved in a way I do not deserve. Because God did this for me, loved me in this way, the only right thing for me to do is to respond and do the same. Because God's lavish love for me, because of it, I can love others. Even the most undeserving. Even those who will not love me back. Why? Because God loved me when I didn't love him back. God loved me when I was undeserving of that love. This makes obedience not something that we muster up within ourselves, but an overflow of what we have received. It's a big difference there. And it's the difference between a gospel believer and a Pharisee. <laughs> a big difference. God pours out his love in our little broken cup. That's who we are. God pours out our, his love in our little broken cup and that spills over to all those around us. If that's the way it should work, what's going wrong? You might ask. What stops that overflow from happening? Why aren't you loving others that way? It's probably because your heart really isn't convinced of God's lavish love for you. If you were, it'd be natural to love others the same way. Your heart hasn't been won completely and overwhelmed by the greatness of God's love toward you. If it was, that love would be contagious. Your heart would want to love others the way that you have been loved. This is why we need Christmas, folks. 
It's why you need it. It's why I need it. Every year we need it. We need Christmas as a fresh reminder of God's incredible love manifested for us. His self-denying love that lays down his rights. His initiating love that pursues us. His punishment-absorbing love that covers over our sin. His contagious love that conquers our hearts as well. Before we conclude, there is one more description to attach to this love that we find in this passage. This is a contagious love, but it's also a connecting love, a connecting love. We see that in verses 12 through 14. Christmas is about a connecting love. Look at verse 12. No one has seen God at any time, If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. Christmas is about a connecting love. The scripture says no one has seen God at any time. If you can, imagine the physical universe like a box. All the sum total of all matter, it's there. It's the box. Whatever whatever exists is in the box. But guess what? God doesn't dwell in the box. No one's seen him at any time. God doesn't dwell in the box. He isn't a part of the physical universe that you can see. He's outside the box. And what? He created the box. He can open the box. He does things in the box. He's like the wind. You don't see the wind, but you see the effects of the wind. We haven't seen God. But love connects us. To him. Love connects us to what we cannot see. If we love one another, God abides in us. First John says, love connects all that we are to all that God is. If you look very closely at these three verses, verses 12, 13, and 14, you'll see a Trinitarian formula emerge. The Trinity, three persons of who God is, as he's revealed himself to us, you see all three in these verses. Look again, verse 12. Verse 12 says that love connects us with the unseen God, the Father, the God outside the box. Verse 13 says, by this we know we abide in him and he in us because he has given us his Spirit. The same love that connects us with God the Father also connects us with God the Spirit. And verse 14, we have seen and testified that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. The love that connects us with God the Father and God the Spirit also connects us to God the Son, the Trinity. All that God is, God without remainder, has been connected to us through love. Through love. So, there's a burning question to ask at the end. What love? What love? What love connects us to God? Can it be a love in general? A love for parents? a love for children, a love for friends, a love for justice, a general love without regard for God? 
a general love without regard for Christ, while all real love does have God as its ultimate source, the love that connects us to him also has God as its object. Not just the source, but the object. So much so that even our love for other things, our love for parents, for pets, for paintings, is enfolded into our love for God. We love these things more because we love God through them. But for some people, God is nowhere on their radar as they love things. They may love their children, but without God in the picture, their love often suffocates and puts too much pressure on their children or spoils their children. They may love their stuff, but without God in the picture, they are devastated when things break. When you lose something, you feel that loss, the loss of possessions. Without God being ultimate in our loves, we actually love things worse because we love them in destructive ways. We put a weight on them they were never designed to bear. But for those who embrace Jesus, who love the love that God gets, the love that connects you with God and with all other things, Guess what that love does? It not only is love for God, but it amplifies our love for everything. So that we love our friends more because we love the Father supremely. We love our spouse more because we love the spirit that stirs up our hearts. We love the seaside more because we love the Son who rules over every wave. Henry Scrugel made this profound statement back in the 1700s. He said, The worth and excellency of a soul is to be measured by the object of its love. The worth and excellency of a soul is to be measured by the object of its love. In other words, if your love only extends to trifle things, to the latest TV series, to the bestsellers, then those loves will be the measure of you in the end. But if the object of your love is God, the God who revealed himself, who has revealed his great love for you in Jesus, the God who brings the joys of Christmas into the world, then the worth and excellency of your soul will be measured by his worth. His excellency. Christmas, therefore, comes to us with a question. Who does your soul love? Who or what is ultimate in your affections? As you consider that this morning, I'll leave you with the words of the Apostle Paul and pray that they might be true for you. As well today. Paul said, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. 
In the future, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me. And not only to me, but also to all who have, what? Loved his appearing. You want the crown of righteousness? It comes by loving the appearing of Christ. The most important thing about you this Christmas is not what you do, but who you love. Who does your soul love? Rejoice today that the crown of righteousness goes to all who have loved Christ appearing, to all who have loved his advent. Let's pray together. Father, as we respond now to your word, I pray that our hearts would afresh and anew perceive how great this love is that leaves heaven for earth in pursuit of willful rebels and sinners like us. How great the love is that pierces darkness, our darkness, with your light. How great the love is that walks in our shoes, knows our sorrows and our pain, and takes upon himself our punishment. Tastes death for us that we might not need to taste it for ourselves and restores us back into fellowship with the God who made all things. May we know this love and feel it afresh this morning. And may our heart's response be love. Love for one another, love for the unlovely, love for the undeserving, a love that pursues. May this be our heart before you this Christmas, one of joyful gratitude and response to your great love for us. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.